three, two, one. Welcome to Kentucky Caliber. Progressive thought and accurate analysis. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jason Belcher, veteran, small business owner, and lifelong Democrat. Today we're going to be talking about a couple of things. We're going to start with the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Recently, President Biden announced that United States military forces would leave Afghanistan, and Americans want to know, was the United States' longest war worth it? To get started, let's listen to what the President Biden had to say about the U.S. withdrawal, and uh, let's listen here to cut one. After 20 years, a trillion dollars spent training and equipping hundreds of thousands of Afghan national security and defense forces, 2,448 Americans killed, 20,722 more wounded and untold thousands coming home with unseen trauma to their mental health. I will not send another generation of Americans to war in Afghanistan with no reasonable expectation of achieving a different outcome. President Biden there making the decision to withdraw U.S. forces from Afghanistan. I think it's important that we point out the decision to make that withdrawal is not a partisan one. It is not just members of the Democratic Party who support withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, in just a second, I'm going to play a, a, a really brief clip from Army Cap, former Army Captain Sam Brown, who was running for U.S. Senate in Nevada. He was severely wounded in Afghanistan by an IED. And by the way, as from one former captain, I was a captain in the Air Force. He was a captain in the Army. From one former captain to another, I, I have nothing but respect for your service. But let's listen to his response when asked on Fox News recently if he thought the United States should remain in Afghanistan or if we should leave. It's my personal belief that we should have been out years ago. We should not have been bringing so many arms and leaving them there in Afghanistan. So we have some bipartisan agreement that things have gone wrong and it's time to leave Afghanistan. But where did our mission in Afghanistan first go wrong? To understand that, we need to apply a little bit of historical context. In 2001, in November, according to Gallup polls, 80% of the American public supported a ground war in Afghanistan. So 8 out of 10 Americans said, yes, we want ground troops in Afghanistan. And they had a good reason. Al-Qaeda planned the 9-11 attacks from Afghanistan. So we had to find that threat and eliminate it. We had to go to the source. So there we were, 2001. As a nation, we had a pretty high degree of agreement. We had a just cause. But we didn't really have a plan. And we had very little information about Afghanistan. Even our military and intelligence agencies knew very little about it. Few people spoke the language or understood much of anything about the history or ground truth there. As late as 2009, that's eight years after we started combat operations in Afghanistan, a then two-star general named Michael Flynn, yes, that Michael Flynn, said whenever he asked his intelligence analysts a question about Afghan history or culture, all he got was a shrug. And unfortunately, that lack of knowledge extended to the highest levels of our government which led to the single biggest mistake of the entire war. So if you want to know where the war in Afghanistan first went wrong, let's listen to then-President Bush speaking to the American public in September of 2001 
I think maybe even on, on the same day or just the day after the 9-11 attacks had happened. So when he gave this address, Ground Zero and the Pentagon were still on fire and first responders were still looking for survivors. Those who are behind these evil acts. I've directed the full resources of our intelligence and law enforcement communities to find those responsible and to bring them to justice. We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them. That last statement is absolutely critical. President Bush said, we shall make no distinction between the terrorists or those who harbor them. And that was a huge problem right at the beginning. And it was a problem because the Taliban were never Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda attacked us on 9-11, not the Taliban. And I get it, the Taliban are bad guys. Their belief system is appalling, as are their actions. Absolutely, I'm not questioning that. But the fact is, there were enormous differences between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, and our failure to even try to understand those differences ended up undermining the entire war effort. You know who the Taliban are? Taliban is a Pashtu word, which means student, and Pashtu is the language spoken by Afghanistan's largest ethnic group, the Pashtun. Of 31 million Afghans, about 41-42%, close to half, depending on which source you check, are ethnic Pashtun. Students of what? In this case, it means student of Islam, which is the predominant religion uh, of Afghanistan. And that's critical because Al-Qaeda also claimed to be adherents of a, of a very puritanical version of Islam. And both adhere more or less to the, to the Sunni branch of Islam. So, American planners and policymakers in 2001 said, ha, aha. So they have the same religion, the same branch of the same religion. Well, they must be in it together. Well, the problem is that was wrong. It was wrong for a lot of reasons. First, the version of Islam practiced in Afghanistan bears almost no resemblance to the kind of Islam practiced in mosques throughout most of the Middle East. Islam, Islamic scholars have repeatedly said of the Taliban, and I quote, they can't make a single statement without making an error in Islamic jurisprudence. So this is a little bit of an oversimplification, but basically, Islamic scholars in places like Al-Azhar in Egypt, which by the way is considered to be one of the leading centers of Islamic study in the world, Al-Azhar is, is basically the Harvard of Sunni Islam. Anyway, Islamic scholars there basically thought of the Taliban as a bunch of illiterate yokels who don't even know how to read scripture correctly. So Al-Qaeda and the Taliban really didn't share exactly the same religion. And that's only one difference. Another even bigger difference between Al-Qaeda and the Taliban is what they wanted to accomplish. Al-Qaeda wanted to topple governments in the Middle East and force the U.S. to leave that region. They were definitely a terrorist group, but they were a well-organized and well-funded terrorist group with a clearly defined global mission. By contrast, the Taliban cared nothing for the world outside Afghanistan, and they were not well-organized or well-funded. They relied mainly on opium sales to finance their activities. To rank-and-file members of the Taliban, what went on in the Middle East, Europe, and North America meant next to nothing to them. Al-Qaeda, though, cared a whole lot about world events. The Taliban, it didn't matter. They only cared about running things in Afghanistan. That was their focus. And even more, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda spoke different languages. Arabic was the common language of Al-Qaeda members. The Taliban spoke Pashtu. Those two languages have nothing in common. They don't sound anything alike. So what the heck were these two very different groups doing together in the first place? Well, a generation ago, both groups fought a common enemy. The founders of the Taliban, most of the folks who, who created the organization or the group or were its first members, they're all veterans of the Russian invasion of Afghanistan. And that took place during the, the late 70s and, and then during the early 80s. During that same time, a young Saudi named Osama bin Laden also went to Afghanistan to fight the Russians. 
So that's where the, the founders of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda's founder first met. Bin Laden was rich. The Taliban were poor. He helped to fight against the Russians. So even though they had their differences, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda knew each other from combat in Afghanistan against the, the former Soviet Union. So they had a history. They knew each other. But they still maintained a lot of differences. Yet, at the beginning of the U.S. operation in Afghanistan in 2001, our president instructed our military that none of those differences mattered. And of course, as we would find out through years of effort in Afghanistan, the problem is they did matter. There's a saying amongst the, the, the army folks that we haven't done 20 years in Afghanistan. We've done one year 20 times. And what that means is we simply failed to learn any lessons, or if the lessons we did learn, we didn't pass those down in a, in a good way or an effective way to the next group of people who were coming to take over the, uh, the operation in Afghanistan. It's important to understand those differences between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda because our mission in Afghanistan somewhere along the way, probably only after three or four years, changed. Initially, we were there simply to find and eliminate Al-Qaeda and those who planned the 9-11 attacks. But as time went on, policymakers and decision makers in the United States decided that our primary mission was to build a nation in Afghanistan. So nation building became our primary mission instead of finding and eliminating Al-Qaeda. Our military forces were still instructed to do that, but at the same time, they were given another mission, and that mission began to consume more and more of their time and resources. That's called mission creep. Mission creep is when you add a new element to the mission that begins to take over all other aspects of your mission. And that's what happened in Afghanistan. And understand a couple of basic facts about Afghanistan itself. First of all, it's a big place. It's bigger than Texas. If you look at the Afghan-Pakistan border, if you superimpose that border on a map of the United States, it would reach from New York City to Santa Fe, New Mexico. It's big. And there aren't many roads or serviceable ways to move people or goods around. There's not a lot of transportation networks in Afghanistan. A lot of folks who've been there will tell you terrain is your number one enemy. It's a rugged place. It's a desolate place. It's not like the United States or Europe or even parts of Asia that have well-developed infrastructure, well-developed road systems or rail networks. Afghanistan has none of that. It also does not have a government. It did not have a functioning government, and it hasn't for years. It's had 19 constitutions in the last 50 years. So there's been an almost constant flow of changing governments and changing regimes in Afghanistan. And that's naturally led people to be suspicious whenever someone comes along and says, well, we want a, we want a new government. Well, they've heard it before. They've watched governments rise and fall at a pretty quick rate. That doesn't impress, Af that doesn't impress Afghans. They're not impressed by the idea that someone's going to show up with a new government. But that's what the United States did. We decided that we were going to do nation building. And we made that decision for a lot of reasons. One, at least in the outset, we had, a, we had an inkling of a good idea that it was necessary to make sure Afghanistan had a functioning government so they could help prevent the country being used as a base of operation for future attacks against the United States. That's at least logical. I could say that at that point, and this is probably around 2002, 2003, we at least had the, an inkling of a good idea that was based on logic. However, none of the folks who made that decision really listened to the information about Afghanistan to understand that what they were attempting would be monumentally difficult, if not impossible. And we ignored that evidence mainly because there is a, a very large profit incentive for 
a number of different contractors who ended up working in Afghanistan and for, for the Afghan government itself. Basically, the Afghan government would go on to turn the U.S. government into its personal ATM. And so did contractors who sent, who sent civilian forces there to aid in that effort. So there was big money to be made in the nation-building effort, regardless of whether it ever yielded any results. There was a lot of money to be made. You, you can call it the military-industrial complex if you want. That's probably at least somewhat true, if not completely true in this case. So we pushed forward with the nation-building effort because there was money to be made, not because we really thought we could, we could ever accomplish it. If you'd listened to the history of Afghanistan or learned anything about the culture there, you would understand the difficulties that we were facing. And those difficulties never went away. They, instead of getting smaller, they grew. So this crack at the beginning of our plan only continued to widen as time went on until it eventually would bring down the entire edifice of the nation-building project. And that's where we are today. As forces leave Afghanistan, the government is basically, it has, it's, to put it generously, it's very limited in its function. And to put it less kindly, it's corrupt and probably doesn't have much longer to live. Um, a lot of folks think the Taliban will take back over the capital of Kabul and, and with it the, the country of Afghanistan. That's not a, a given. It's not certain that that's going to happen, but there certainly is a probability that that could take place within the next six weeks or the next six months or the next year. I can't give you an exact time frame. Nobody can, but it's certainly a possibility. If you want to know why the people of Afghanistan have continued to show support for the Taliban, the answer is because of the corruption in Kabul. The government of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, what we used to call Jaroa uh, in the ISAF world, that's, that's the International Security Assistance Force Afghanistan, so shorthand for the, the Afghan government was called Jaroa. The corruption of Jaroa is one of the biggest drivers of support for uh, public support for the, the Taliban in Afghanistan. What you have to understand is there are people in Afghanistan who are more afraid of their own police than they are of the Taliban. And, and the reason for that is the Afghan National Police is notoriously corrupt. And to give you an example of what that looks like, if you're an, an ordinary Afghan business person who's trying to get something done or move goods, the police will set up checkpoints on the highways and they'll stop you and they'll rob you or they'll demand that you pay them protection money. It's really very, very simple. It's almost like a mafia setup. And this, is, this was going on as far back as at least 2008, 2009, if not sooner. And that legacy of corruption was never something that we were able to overcome. The United States and its planners and the members of the Afghan government were never able to find a way to eliminate that corruption, and the Taliban exploited it. They exploited it because they said, look, look, the Afghan people understand the corruption that's coming from Kabul. We're the solution. So the, the Taliban presented themselves as an alternative to corruption. And not only was the government of Afghanistan in, in the example of the Afghan National Police extorting civilians, they were also incredibly ineffective and inefficient. It could take months and months to get even a driver's license, something very simple. It could take years, if and in most cases never, to deliver something even more important, and that is justice. So whenever someone was arrested for a criminal act, the government of Afghanistan did not have the infrastructure. They didn't have a court system. It didn't have judges. It didn't have lawyers. It didn't have the infrastructure necessary to deliver justice to the people of Afghanistan, and that's very important. You know, justice is a public good. It's something we take for granted, or, or I guess after 2020 here in the United States, maybe we don't take that for granted anymore, but it's something a lot of people take for granted, and that's something that doesn't exist in Afghanistan. And the Taliban stepped in and said, we can provide justice very quickly, very swiftly, and very brutally. 
which they've done. They've set up what's called shadow governments and shadow courts where they try and convict criminals in less than a day. And even though folks in Afghanistan may not approve of the harshness of the punishment, they at least recognize that the Taliban gets things done. So in a sense, if you want to use an example from World War II, in a sense, part of the Taliban's appeal in Afghanistan is that they made the trains run on time. That's a, a reference to Italy prior to World War II when then-dictator Benito Mussolini told people that he made the trains run on time, which he for a while did. So that was part of his promotion to the, to the masses that you should accept my rule, I can get things done. So the Taliban made a similar argument in Afghanistan. They can get things done. The Afghan government is corrupt, so you should support us. And for lots of time, that worked in Afghanistan. That resulted in a shift in public opinion away from support for the government in Kabul to support for the Taliban. So that's one of the reasons why the Taliban has remained popular in Afghanistan. It's been able to position itself as an alternative to the corruption coming from the nation's capital. And so what that meant for the United States is very clear. By positioning itself as a defender of justice and, a, and as, as a bulwark against the corruption in Kabul, the Taliban told the Afghan people, look, that the, you know the government in Kabul is corrupt. You know that. You've been there. You've seen it. You've lived it. You've experienced it. There's no question about it. No one disputes this. That government is corrupt. And who is the biggest benefactor of that corrupt government in Kabul? The answer is obvious. The United States. So when the Taliban was able to use the corruption in the Afghan government as a weapon against public support in Afghanistan for the United States. And that, for a while, also was very effective. We found ourselves supporting a government that the Afghan people knew were corrupt. So for us to go to them and say, oh, we didn't know the government was corrupt, then the Afghan people, when they heard that, they would, they would think one of two things. Either we're lying or we're just incredibly stupid. Which is it? And, and, and neither one of those two are, are the types of folks that they would want to be involved with. So it hurt us. The corruption in Kabul of the Afghan government hurt the United States effort in Afghanistan. Not only the nation-building effort, it hurt our efforts to find and eliminate al-Qaeda as well. Because who wants to cooperate or help or, give in, or share intelligence with or conduct operations with someone that's supporting a corrupt regime in the nation's capital? So the Taliban was able to use that corruption as a weapon against us, and that hurt our mission against uh, the mission to find and eliminate al-Qaeda. It slowed us down, it cost us time and money, and it made things more difficult. So that's how, over time, the nation-building effort began to work directly against our mission to find and eliminate al-Qaeda. So what was the American response to the Taliban statements that the government of Afghanistan is corrupt and that Afghans should oppose that government and by extension they should oppose America's presence in Afghanistan? Well, American policymakers looked back to what President Bush said and said, well, he was right all along. There really is no difference between the Taliban and al-Qaeda, so we should fight them too. So now we had to take, undertake combat operations against the Taliban instead of just al-Qaeda. Well, the Taliban is more numerous and much larger, and they're indigenous to the country of Afghanistan, where al-Qaeda was not. So that increase in combat operations made the mission more difficult. What it all means is that despite the bravery and heroism of our armed forces in Afghanistan, who, by the way, succeeded in finding and eliminating al-Qaeda, despite that success, the mistakes that were made in Washington, D.C., the strategic mistakes that were made to attempt nation-building and to make that our primary mission are what ultimately doomed the efforts, the American efforts in Afghanistan. So nation-building failed, but finding and eliminating al-Qaeda succeeded. 
Yet because policymakers have chosen to define our mission by nation building, which is something that America's adversaries and critics abroad were only too happy to to agree with, so now there's the universal consensus that the mission in Afghanistan has failed. Well, the nation building part has certainly failed. There's very, very it's very difficult to dispute that. But again, we don't have to consider the military withdrawal from Afghanistan to be an abandonment. There needs to be a regional diplomatic initiative specifically involving Afghanistan's neighbors, especially Pakistan, who is a direct stakeholder in Afghanistan. Diplomacy is the way to bring about future changes and future assistance to the Afghan people. We cannot limit it simply to the presence or absence of the United States military. Our military is not an instrument for nation building. It's an instrument for protecting the United States from attack and for finding and eliminating threats to our national security. So the future in Afghanistan, the Afghan people deserve better than, than abandonment, and so do the Afghans who helped us all these years as we undertook operations. There needs to be a regional diplomatic in initiative in that part of the world, in Central Asia, to ensure stability and peace in Afghanistan. And it can work. Military force is not the only way to achieve objectives, and I think here in the United States we've forgotten that. Force is not the only answer. It's not the only tool we have in the toolkit. Diplomacy is what we need. We need to regrow and revitalize our diplomatic capacity, and we need to undertake and try to lead a regional diplomatic effort in Central Asia to stabilize Afghanistan, because that's what the Afghan people deserve. But as far as the military commitment goes, our sons and daughters, our soldiers and sailors, airmen and marines have done enough, and, and certainly it is, it is the right move now to bring them home. They can serve no more purpose in Afghanistan, so that decision to, to, to bring them home is the correct one. But we need to complement that decision with a new diplomatic initiative in Central Asia to make sure that the people of Afghan Afghanistan are not forgotten or abandoned. Okay, so now we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about something that's a little bit closer to home. Uh, for our next segment, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about critical race theory. What is it? What is it not? And why should you care? I had a chance to talk about this topic on uh, News Talk Radio 590 AM on the Jack Patty Show recently that uh, broadcast out of Lexington. And I just want to play a real brief clip of that. Um, it gave me a really nice introduction to set up the topic. So uh, I just want to play that real quick before we get started on our uh, discussion of critical race theory. Uh, this is a controversial subject we're going to uh, discuss this morning with a very fine guest, Jason Belcher. is an Iraq veteran and former captain in the United States Air Force. He has a degree in history from the University of Kentucky, is a uh, owner of VR Heroes, a small business located in Pikeville, Kentucky. I want to say thank you to Jack Patty for that uh, overly kind introduction. And if you want to hear the rest of that, you can go to the uh, website for the Jack Patty Show and you can listen to the rest of that uh, very interesting uh, discussion we had broadcast online. So why do I care about critical race theory? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, I'm a parent. I have school-aged children, so... What gets taught in the curriculum at schools is of uh, very much interest to me. The other reason is I've had a chance through job experience to deal with uh, a related topic. My last assignment on active duty was as Chief of Military Equal Opportunity for Goodfellow Air Force Base. And my job there was to train 6,000 soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines on DOD equal opportunity policies and also to uh, investigate allegations of, of EO misconduct. You know, we always had, had new folks coming to the base so we had weekly training seminars for new arrivals and we would do refresher training for those who were already there. 
You know, I mentioned that because diversity training uh, and the concept of diversity in general uh, in the military is, is one of the reasons why I think topics like critical race theory has become so visible. The other, of course, being uh, the George Floyd murder and subsequent protests. And, of course, as I mentioned at the outset there, the, uh, con- the discussion about what should be taught in school curriculums. So, first of all, diversity training in the military doesn't talk critical race theory at all. That, that's not part of the, the training, or at least it, it wasn't when I was there. And it's not being taught uh, in K-12 schools. It's not being taught in schools here in Kentucky and it's not being taught, uh, for the most part, across the nation. I think in Frankfurt, the Commissioner of Education in Kentucky did a, an interview with, I think, the Lexington Herald leader recently, and, and he mentioned that, uh, that he's not aware of any syllabus or syllabi in the state of Kentucky that require the teaching of critical race theory. So it's not being taught in schools. It's not being taught in the military. But nonetheless, it's, it's a hot topic, and, it, and it's an important topic that we should, we should talk about. And to do that, we just need to find out, you know, what is it and where did it come from? Well... It started as a scholarly effort. It's, it's, a, it's basically a legal theory, and it originated from the work of a couple of Harvard Law scholars, uh, Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, and they were working in the late 1970s, early 80s. They coined the phrase critical race theory. If you read through some of the papers they published at those times, you'll see that phrase uh, for the first time used in print and in a scholarly publication. So what were they, what were they studying, and how did they come up with this idea of critical race theory? Well, what they wanted to know was they were at the time they started, and this was in the, the early '70s. It had been about a decade since the past passage of the landmark Civil Rights Act in 1964, and so from a from a scholarly perspective, they wondered why is it that after this landmark legislation, uh, the Civil Rights Act has passed, why do we still have um, racial injustice and inequality, and why is progress on fixing those things seem to have stalled out? So, you know, far from being some kind of a liberal academic paradigm, critical race theory was actually born as a criticism against the, the prevailing mostly liberal narrative at the time, which is that uh, steady progress on the issues of race, racial ju- justice and equality in the U.S. was a given. Okay, so that's kind of where it came from. So what is it? Well, it's a legal theory that seeks to answer a central question. And that question is, do institutions and systems in the United States treat people differently on account of race? That, that's it. That's the essence of it. Critical race theory argues, and a, a lot of proponents to the theory argue, that the answer to that question is yes. And to back it up, they'll provide a, a, a pretty good amount of evidence to go with their claim. You know, they'll, they'll go back to the Civil War, and the most obvious example uh, prior to the Civil War when slavery was legal, which is obviously, you know, the biggest example of systematic racism in our country's history. Even after the war ended, especially in southern states, Many states used their state legislators to perpetuate slavery by other names, and that went on for another hundred years, uh, right up until the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. So, you know, the United States is 245 years old, and, and there's pretty strong evidence for at least 200 of those years, you know, there is institutionalized racism existed. It, it's just indisputable. And many argue that it still exists today, and we'll get to that argument in just a second. But it's important here to emphasize what critical race theory is not as well. First of all, it's a theory. It's not a commandment. It's critical race theory, not critical race commandment. So it doesn't command anybody to believe anything. It's not anti-white. It doesn't teach black victimhood. It has absolutely nothing to do with Marxism. Marxism, by the way, is an economic theory. Critical race theory is a legal theory. So those two are not related. And also, there's nothing, this is the most important point I want to make here, there's nothing new or radical about it. People have been writing about and studying racism, race, and systemic racism for over 200 years. 
One of the earliest examples is a book called The Interesting Narrative of the Life of Olada Equiano. That was published in 1789. 1789, and it included accounts of life aboard a slave ship, and it was, in fact, it was written by a former slave. Over the next 80 years, over 100 autobiographies of former slaves were written and published, not just in the U.S., but worldwide. Herman Melville wrote a story called Benito Serrano, which explicitly called out both the horrors of slavery and predicted the coming civil war several years before it actually started. I think he published that in, in 1855, so he was several years uh, ahead of the curve on predicting that slavery would lead to a civil war in the United States. After the end of the Civil War, the Federal Writers Project put together an oral history of over 2,500 former slaves, and that by itself is a 40-volume project. Anthropologists have been studying race, biologists have been studying race, scholars have been studying racism for well over 200 years. So. Anyone who says the modern notion of critical race theory just came out of the blue, it's some kind of radical new theory, is absolutely wrong. They're absolutely wrong to say it's anti-white. They're absolutely wrong to say it teaches black victimhood. They're absolutely wrong to say that it seeks to reopen old wombs. It's Marxist or that it's somehow radical or new. None of those things are true. But it's also important to point out, advocates of critical race theory get some things wrong too. And those errors need to be called out as well. Advocates of critical race theory claim because there is, well, some of them, not all of them, some of them claim that because there's evidence of systemic racism in American institutions and throughout our history, then that's all America is, and according to them, all the principles of countries it was founded on are invalid or false. You know, that, that assessment is not accurate either. That's wrong. That's what academics call conceptual overstretch. That's when you take an idea and you stretch it way beyond what it's capable of actually supporting. And even further, a few advocates have claimed, uh, a few advocates, not most, but a few advocates of critical race theory have claimed the Revolutionary War was only fought to preserve slavery. That's false as well, and there's overwhelming historical evidence to prove that. And finally, one of the biggest weaknesses of the theory itself is that it relies on a concept, the concept of race, as the main causal factor in U.S. history. The problem with that theory is, from a structural standpoint and from a methodology standpoint, race is hard to define. It's tough to pin down exactly what that means and exactly how to measure it. And if your variable is hard to explain, hard to measure, or hard to define, then it's necessary to admit that the potential explanatory power of your theory itself is called into question. And I think that's important. One of the biggest differences between those who find critical race theory compelling and those who don't find it compelling is the way they think about Racism is the way they define the concept, is the way they understand the meaning of the word racism. For those who only look at individual behavior, they'll say things like, well, I don't use racial slurs. I don't discriminate against anybody based on race. I've never seen anyone do it. I've never witnessed it myself. Or they'll say, well, I have all these opportunities. So systemic racism, if critical race theory was right, all of that couldn't happen. And when you hear that, what you're hearing is an individual perspective. The problem is critical race theory does not, it's not based on an individual perspective, it's a system level theory. It analyzes systems, not individuals. Systems such as our legal system, our government, and it asks the question, do these systems treat people differently on account of race, unequally on account of race, even if, even if the individuals in those systems may not be racist themselves. And so that brings us back to 
what I mentioned uh, at the outset on my with my experience of doing EO training in the military, the fact that the military even has an EO program tells you something. Okay, that's an indicator that our military leaders, they want to prevent systemic racism from taking root in the armed forces, and it has been there in the past. We know that. So they have good reason. There's also a, a more modern reason to want that. You know, if you want to see what happens to a military that doesn't value diversity, just look at the Af Afghan and Iraqi militaries today. Within those, within those organizations, different ethnic sectarian groups, they won't work together. They won't talk to each other sometimes. Sometimes they won't take orders from each other. And occasionally, they even target each other for, for assassination, for killing, or for, or for beating. And as a result, as you would expect, when you've got members of your own, own military trying to hurt each other, readiness is severely degraded. Their mission, their ability to do their mission is severely degraded. But we don't want that kind of thing to ever happen to the U.S. military. We have a diverse fighting force. We come from many different ethnic groups and cultural backgrounds. But when we put that uniform on, we put those differences aside so we can work together to accomplish the mission. And when you bring a huge group of people together to accomplish a difficult mission, that doesn't just happen automatically. It takes some work. And one of the things you have to do, one of the things you have to work at in order to get that to happen is diversity training and EO training. So that means for the United States military, diversity training is a readiness issue. It is not a social experiment. It's not a political agenda, although it can be used in that context. It is a readiness issue. It directly affects our ability to do the mission and how well we can do that mission. And so in order to have diversity training, it's necessary to study why and how systemic racism can affect large organizations like the military. We have to know how something works if you want to defeat it. And so I hope listeners will, will take that into account when they form their own opinions on the topic of critical race theory. I'm not here to advocate it to advocate for it or against it. I'm here to provide some context to help people think about the context that's involved so when they form their own opinions, opinions and when they decide how they feel about it, that they'll take the context into account. Folks who live here in the state of Kentucky should be concerned about recent efforts of the Kentucky State House to pass a bill that would ban critical race theory. House Bill Request 60 is the most recent example of that, although if you, if you actually read the bill, it's, it's pretty clear that the folks who wrote it have little to no idea as to what critical race theory actually means, because the bill is so vaguely written that it could, it could mean almost anything. And that's a problem. The way the bill is currently written, it would be impossible to teach history in the state of Kentucky in classrooms. And actually, according to the language of the bill, as it's currently written, it would be illegal to teach history in the state of Kentucky. You know, the proponents of the bill will tell you, well, we're just trying to we're just trying to stop, we're just trying to ban anyone from promoting the idea that one race is superior to another. Well, nobody would object to that. No one wants anyone teaching that one race is superior to other races in our classrooms. Everybody would agree with that. The problem is, if you read the language of the bill right after that, it says the curriculum cannot include any material that promotes the idea that one race is superior to the other. Not just that it advocates the idea itself, it can't even include material that, that makes that claim. So in other words, how do you talk about the Civil War if you can't explain what slavery was? Slavery was based on the idea that one race was superior to the other. So teaching that is not advocating it. We're not advocating that at all. We're simply explaining what it was. 
But the way this bill is written, we couldn't do that. Same thing would be true for the Second World War. How could we teach what Nazism was if we can't explain what if we can't explain the basic tenets of it, if we can't explain how it came about and what it meant to the people who lived it during their time frame? So that bill would make the teaching of history illegal in the state of Kentucky. And that should be a concern for all of us. I hope folks that live in the state of Kentucky, I hope listeners here in the state of Kentucky will contact their state rep or their state senator and tell them that the only place for House Bill request number 60 is in the trash can. It does not need to become law, and I hope that folks will speak out against it to prevent that from happening. Because learning about our past is important. We have to understand who we are and where we came from. That means we have to face the good parts of our past and the bad parts of our past. We can't just look at the achievements. We also have to face the disasters and injustices as well. And we should be careful when we're learning about our past that we not define our nation solely by its accomplishments or by the injustices that were committed. You can't define the nation solely by one or the other. We have to look at both. We have to accept that both happened, and we have to accept that they're both part of our past and that the learning about the past is important. It's important enough that we should not be living in a state where representatives are trying to pass bills that would make teaching history illegal. Well, that's about all the time we have for today, so thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, why not subscribe? It's free, so we can keep providing progressive thought, fact-based discussion, and accurate analysis. So thanks for listening, and I hope you have a great day.